Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Lord Chris Patton, who, among his many titles, was the last British governor of Hong Kong, where he was based from 1992 until the territory was handed back to China in 1997. We'll be discussing his latest book, The Hong Kong Diaries, which has just been published, detailing those final years of British rule. Lord Patton, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. I'm going to describe for, for listeners of, of, of the podcast who can't see what I'm holding up here on the video version, your book and the sheer number of sticky tabs that are, that are bristling from its pages um, with the things that I would love to ask you about. Obviously, we will not get to every single one of my questions, but I, I thought we would perhaps start with the final section, um, which you title The Empire Goes Home, as we're now coming up to the 25th anniversary of that handover. And you, you write in the book that on that final day, on the 30th of June, I think you woke up at 4.15 a.m. I wonder if you could just take us back to those final hours that day and what sticks with you most now, looking back, the images, the emotions that have stayed with you from those hours these years later. It was obviously a combination of the very personal and a sense that we were doing something which was regarded by a lot of other people in other countries as being relevant to their own historical experience. When I say the very personal, the house was actually full of packing cases with sticky tape on them. I mean, we'd, we'd been in Hong Kong for five years. My wife had, had been there the whole time, of course. My youngest daughter did all her secondary education there and before... Um, getting a place at Cambridge. My two other daughters who were either in work or at university had come and spent a lot of time with us. So there, it was a family moving and leaving friends and not just a diplomat going home. It was quite a big occasion in our lives. So there was all that personal side and leaving friends and leaving our staff who'd looked after us so fantastically well for so many years. It was the most wonderful, I think, five years in that sense of my life, of the of not just the comfort of being there, but the pleasure of the of working with people there, and not least all my Chinese civil servants and and the people who looked after us in the house. 
But I was also very aware of the extent to which our experience was shared by so many others. And it was brought home to me after I'd actually left Hong Kong because going for a walk near a house I've got in France, a few weeks later, I bumped into an old farmer who said to ask where we came from. And I told him, and he said, do you know the great man who's moved into your village? He's had a very important job in, in uh, Asia. So I said, oh yes. And what was that? So he said that he was governor of Saigon. And I realized that for the French and others, this was a common part of their experience. It wasn't just British. I was aware of the fact that we had to leave with a good deal of finger crossing and, and hope in our hearts, as they say, because you couldn't depend on the Chinese keeping their word. After all, they usually don't. Though in fact, for a few years after we left, Hong Kong remained much the same. But there was that sense that we would, we were part of a, of a much larger imperial enterprise. And also that my experience of negotiating for five years with the Chinese was of some relevance to the general issue of how we deal with the Chinese. And I, of course, went on to be European Commissioner for External Affairs, dealing with the Chinese, among others, and actually during those years, getting on pretty well with them. Back then in 1997, the arrangement was that China would respect Hong Kong's freedoms for the next half century. Those rights, the high degree of autonomy was meant to be respected, was enshrined in a, in a treaty lodged at the United Nations until 2047. How did you view those promises at the time? Did you personally believe that they would be respected or did you have real concerns about what would happen? Well, I hoped that they'd be respected and I could see every reason why it was in their interest to respect them. After all, Hong Kong was going to be regarded, I believed and still believe, as very much the canary down the mine as uh, giving the international community and people in the Hong Kong's neighborhood some idea of how China would behave, Chinese Communist Party that is, on the international stage. And one of my biggest critics when I was in, in, uh, in Hong Kong, who really didn't think well, we should take too much, too much notice of what Hong Kongers thought, used to say that he was a great China scholar and had been in Hong Kong and China as, as ambassador. And he used to say that the, the Chinese may be thuggish dictators, but they're men of their word. Well, we know that part of that at least is true, but alas, not the second part. Though I always hoped it would be true, and certainly for a few years after we left Hong Kong, while the, the Beijing interfered too much in Hong Kong, and while as well they rode back on some of the promises they'd made on democratic development, nevertheless, Hong Kong was pretty much the same until Xi Jinping, really, much the same when Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao were supreme leaders or the presidents. I think it changed with Xi Jinping partly because of the fact that the freedoms and of, of Hong Kong as an open society are in some respects a very good definition of what it is that um, the hardline members of the Chinese Communist Party really fear. Um, because Hong Kong had all the aspects of an open and free society and those are regarded as causes real threats by the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And from your own dealings up, up close, and as, as you, you detail a lot of these negotiations in this book, what impression did that give you of the Chinese Communist Party leadership and, and what their priorities were? Because it strikes me, you, some of the exchanges that, that you detail with other members of the British government, for instance, who would go to mainland China and would come back believing they were just on the brink of this promised land of great market access and extraordinary trade deals. But as somebody who dealt really in detail 
with the Communist Party leadership over those years. What was your impression? Well, my impression was, was first of all, um, that um, I think Chinese exceptionalism is even more dangerous than American exceptionalism, if I can put it uh, that way. <laughs> and the, the, the Chinese believed that you had to at least give the impression of accepting their narrative of events if you were to do trade with them. Actually, in practice, by and large, they bought things or sold things and they bought things because they wanted them and they got them at the best price. They invested in other countries because they thought they'd make money. It wasn't a sort of act of um, charity on their part. And if you look at Britain's relationship with them, for example, in the years before I was governor, when we were thought to be having a very calm and quiet relationship with China, despite uh, Tiananmen and despite problems over building the airport, during that period, our exports to um, China actually went down. When I was there with lots lots of humdinger arguments, actually rather exaggerating the extent to which I was, was uh, trying to develop democracy, but certainly standing up for um, human rights and civil liberties. During that period, we had the f- highest and fastest growth in, in exports of any OECD country. So it wasn't post hoc, propter hoc. I just think we were always prepared to accept their version of what enabled you to do trade with China rather than look at the facts and look at, and look at the truth. The other thing which I always felt about them as I feel about negotiating with other people, is you've got to have a bottom line. And unless you have a bottom line and, and stick to it, um, you're endlessly taken for suckers and endlessly maneuvered around by, by the other side. One thing I always also rather worried about in China was under these one country, two systems, which you've talked about, the, the joint declaration, the treaty to govern the return of, of Hong Kong. Under that, China promised to that Hong Kong could remain as it was for 50 years. But I always used to wonder to myself, do the Chinese actually know what Hong Kong is like? Do they just think that Hong Kong is a place where people can get rich? Do they understand the relationship between the rule of law and success? No, they didn't. Um, I had, a, which I record in the diary, of a, a pretty vigorous exchange with my opposite number in Beijing, who said, no, we believe in, in, in rule by law. And I said, no, but you don't believe in rule of law which is fundamentally different. And I tried to explain to him when I'd been a British minister, I used to be regularly challenged in the courts with uh, judicial reviews of, of decisions I'd taken, and I would never know whether I would win or not. Indeed, we had a, a lawyer in my department who was called Mr. Maybe, which was thought to be very suitable because you never actually knew whether, whether you were going to win or not. And the, my opposite number, who was a very intelligent man and spoke beautiful English, didn't really think I was telling the truth. He just didn't understand it. So what, what were your priorities and how did you feel by the end of that time about the grounds that you had made in terms of trying to embed those principles, uh, you know, for instance, with the rule of law and with the judiciary in Hong Kong? First of all, of course, a lot of my time was spent being mayor of Hong Kong and Hong Kong was fantastically successful, not just in those five years, but building on previous success. I mean, when I left, it was the eighth largest trading community in the world. Our fiscal reserves had increased sixfold since the joint declaration. Uh, our GDP had, in, had doubled in real terms since then. We had a per capita GDP, which was higher than UK, Australia, Canada. It was a remarkably successful place. And we'd started, I hope, to redress some of the imbalances between the less well-off and the, and the rich, not as much as in housing as I would have liked, because that would have been pretty disruptive to 
and markets and so on. But we did, we did a pretty good job. Indeed, I was accused by the communists of being a socialist, which was, which was quite something. So that side had gone very well and Hong Kong was amazingly stable. And beyond that, what I wanted to do, um, what was to ensure what, um, uh, one of my advisors, one of the members of Exco, my advisory council, I wanted to implement as, as much of what he called tutorial government as possible to make people understand what it was that had made Hong Kong successful, be self-confident about standing up for their notion of citizenship, which included all the free freedoms and openness that we associate with a, with a liberal society with not total accountability, but growing accountability in the legislative council, but certainly absolute rock solid commitment to people's human rights and to uh, their rights to due process and the rule of law. And I think we did a lot in, in actually making people much more confident about what their citizenship as Hong Kong has actually meant. And it's interesting that has sort of gone down a generation because most of the people who were so active in supporting some of the movements that have happened since we left, a lot of them weren't born when I was, when I was in Hong Kong or were extremely young. So they, I think, understood and accepted what it was that had made the Hong Kong of their parents and grandparents so incredibly successful. And when you ask some of those who were critical about uh, what we did in Hong Kong, who suggest that um, we should have just, just left Hong Kong alone and shouldn't have done anything to try to secure the rule of law and an accountable government. When you ask them why it is in that case that they have foreign passports in their back pockets, they look rather sheepish. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that all my successors in just chief executive have either themselves had foreign passports or have large numbers of their family with foreign passports. The last chief executive, Carrie Lam, her husband and sons both have British passports. No, I'm not, I'm not against that. But if they're so confident about the future of Hong Kong under the Communist Party, why bother? Mm -hmm. And you talk in the book about this idea that perhaps almost Hong Kong success could change China, that perhaps it would be, the, the causal mechanism would be that way around, that the example of Hong Kong would show what could come from rule of law, from a, a business environment that was enticing for it international trade. Was that your view, firstly? And at how widespread was, was the idea that perhaps the Hong Kong example could have a real meaningful effect on the trajectory of the mainland rather than the other way around? Well, it was a hope. And a hope that I, that I, I often express, not least because I really did think it was possible that Hong Kong might change um, the rest of China more than China would change Hong Kong. And what I was looking at, for example, wasn't just the rule of law, but was the quality of our public service, the integrity of public service, and the importance and robust quality of civil society, whether voluntary organizations or professional or professional bodies. I hope that those things, which are all part of Hong Kong's core citizenship, would make an impact in China. I could never really understand why China would need to change very much, given that she was taking over a Rolls Royce and all she had to do was to turn the ignition and off they'd pop. And I also wondered why Chinese communists would have spent so many hours and days and weeks fighting over every nitty gritty of what was happening in, in Hong Kong, if at the end of the day, 
They were just going to walk away from it and abandon it all. So those were reasons for some, I would say, cautious optimism. But I wasn't entirely over the moon in thinking all that would happen. I hoped it would happen and saw every reason why it should happen. I never thought that the, the, the army would come marching in as a Tiananmen. And I would have rather hoped that the police would continue to behave well rather than as badly as they did uh, in dealing with some of the riots. What they called riots, which were actually uh, demonstrations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, you write in the book about the the lack of an arbitration mechanism in, in this agreement. So there, there was a, a treaty which both the United Kingdom and China had signed, which was lodged at the United Nations. But you write in the book that the joint declaration was not supported by any arbitration mechanism, which was thought to be unnecessary since it was the intention to develop more rapidly Hong Kong's own democratic institutions. And then you write, this promise was left rather limply dangling in the wind. China's leaders recognized that breaking an international agreement such as the joint declaration would trigger criticism from many countries, but they thought they could get away with it. I wonder, does it, it strike you now that perhaps this is one of the more important lessons to, to learn from this experience is the respect with which China does treat these international agreements. So I guess, I guess two parts to that question. Was there anything more that could have been done now with hindsight? Or should we understand from this how China views the international system, which it, it claims to be you know, one, of the, one of the guarantors um, and chief supporters of? Well, two very, very good questions. On the first, could we have done more initially? It's true that when the idea of an arbitration mechanism was pushed, particularly by people in Hong Kong, the government of the day, and particularly led by the guru on China policy called Percy Craddock, their argument was that wouldn't be necessary because we were talking about developing democracy and you wouldn't need an arbitration mechanism if you developed democracy. Having won that argument, they then spent several years before I, I, I went to Hong Kong and indeed afterwards, fighting every attempt to implement a bit more democracy. Because for them, for them, the big game was getting on with China. And Britain, Britain without Hong Kong could have this wonderful relationship with, with China, as though there was any aspect of our relationship with China, which was as big as Hong Kong. Hong Kong wasn't just a pebble in the sandal. Hong Kong was, after all, when we left 18, 19% of China's GDP, there was nothing as big as that. And of course, as I mentioned, there was always the canary in the, in the mine aspect as well. On, on the question which you raised about whether we were sort of deluding ourselves about China, yeah, I think a lot of the time other countries have. And I look back at a document you will know well, which was the 1946 Long Telegram, written by one of America's greatest diplomats in which, talking about relations with the uh, Soviet Union after the war, he said, what we mustn't fail to understand is that their view of reality and ours are incompatible. And it's true with China today. Our view of theirs and theirs on what's happening in Xinjiang are incompatible. Tibet, incompatible. Forced sterilization or abortions, incompatible. Our views of what's created the astonishing gender imbalance, which from ages 10 to 20 now is about 20%. That's incompatible. What they're doing to produce the rule of law in Hong Kong as a sort of 
facade as a sort of Potemkin, to, to talk to about a different country, a sort of Potemkin facade, that's incompatible. So I think we very often kidded ourselves about China, and I'm sure it hasn't got us anywhere, but I'm not sure that it's been very helpful to China because mm -hmm. all of us should want China rejuvenated as it has been since Deng Xiaoping ensured that it joined the global economy. Let's not forget that China used to be 30% of the global economy, according to Angus Madison. It had gone down to about 3% by the 1970s. And in a way, what's the most interesting story is why it had gone from 30 to 3 rather than why it's gone from 3 up to 27, 28% again. But, but we, we've sort of deluded ourselves that that would inevitably lead to the Chinese becoming, in political and governance terms, more like us. I remember um, Tony Blair, who was not, a, not, a, not immune to whistling past the cemetery, saying on one occasion after they'd signed the WTO that now their route to democracy was unstoppable. Well, it stopped. <laughs> it didn't actually start very much. But I do think that that whatever one says about the, the mistakes that we may have made and did make, whatever we may say about a prevailing feeling in parts of, I think, all foreign ministries that somehow you've got to humor China and ignore the fact that they're doing better out of you than you're doing out of them. After all, as I recall, China's exports to the United States went up by 1600% in 15 years. I mean, astonishing. And you can look at similar figures for their relationship with the UK. I think there, there was that, um, that sense of self-delusion. And I think that um, if, if Hong Kong helps to do one thing, which I hope it will, it will be to open our eyes about the importance of, of course, trying to get along with China, but recognizing that their behavior needs to be constrained, not contained, but constrained, as Gerald Siegel uh, used to argue, if we're going to be able to share the planet with them more successfully. I can just add one point, a real worry I have is if we do make a success in some open societies, it's a Spartan if, I guess, of dealing with climate change, with individual citizens having to make some changes in their lives and even some, some uh, sacrifices, how then, what then is the impact on democracy in, in Western societies um, if the Chinese are seen to be getting away with it? If while, while we're paying more for driving a car, finding it more difficult to, um, to heat our homes without spending a lot of money on insulation. If at the same time, China has seemed to be opening a new coal power station every week or whatever, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to do what's right in our own countries without the democratic strains being, being pretty horrendous. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are, 
but the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you think that we are at risk of making the same mistakes that you've you've just detailed so eloquently, you know, despite everything that has happened to Hong Kong, despite these terrible atrocities in Xinjiang, we see Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak seem to be very keen to restart trade talks with China. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the golden age of, of relations between China and the UK in, in the last decade. Are we just perpetually repeating this cycle of believing that, you know, yes, there are terrible, terrible atrocities that must be condemned, but ultimately that the trade and the economic relationship is, is too important not to have a better relationship with China? Yes, we are in danger of making those mistakes. I hope we won't go back to, to some of the awful flannel and awful self-abasement of the, of the, of the so-called golden age with, with George Osborne as part of an official visit to China going to Urumqi the same week that one of the, a very peaceful leader of the Uyghur, an intellectual leader of the Uyghur Muslims, was being sentenced in court. There was George Osborne trooping around um, Urumqi. God knows what British business he thought he was going to be drumming up in Urumqi. So I hope we can go back to all that. But there's a danger in thinking that there is a real politic um, which is challenged by people like me and it will have economic consequences. I think that's absolute. Well, I would, I would be vulgar were I not uh, talking to the new statesman. I think it's absolute cobblers. I mean, 
I really do. And and I recall somebody who used to write for your great uh, organ and was uh, the Observer's column commentator or correspondent in Beijing during Tiananmen. He was he was feisty beyond feistiness. He could be really tiresome. I never known anybody storm out of dinner parties as often or with as much vigor as as Jonathan Mercer used used to. He'd started off as a Maoist. He became a huge critic of the Chinese Communist Party because he saw what it what it had done, and not least at Tiananmen. He was covering that for for the Observer. As a result of of being there, he got his arm broken and about five teeth teeth knocked out. So he's covering that, and the kid next to him says, as they hear the pop, pop, pop of of guns going off, it's lucky they're only firing rubber bullets, isn't it? At which point this kid fell dead in Mursky's arms with a hole in the middle of his head. And Mursky, partly as a result of that and about other similar experiences, Mursky was always, always adamant that you had to say when things were wicked and you had to say when things weren't just unwise, but bad and wrong. And I think that there's a real danger in when we're dealing with Russia at the moment over Ukraine and a real danger when we're dealing with China of thinking that somehow it's a bit feeble to, to say things are wicked when what we actually want to say is, well, you know, I'm sure we can find some sensible compromise and way through can't find a compromise when people are doing things that are wicked. You have to call them out and make it clear that that is absolutely against your interests, the world's interests, and indeed in their interests. So I hope that um, we won't go back to golden age rubbish. I hope we will try to have a reasonable relationship with China. I hope it'll be based on reciprocity of us being able to sell into China just as they can sell into us of following human rights standards, all those things. I hope that'll be true, but I hope we recognize that it's got to be on the basis of a rule book, which everybody accepts. Two brief final questions, as I know we're running short on time. One is you, you, you have a postscript essay in the book detailing what has happened in Hong Kong since 1997. Given what we've seen just even in the past few years with the national security law, with the arrest of figures like Cardinal Zen, who I believe you, you knew during your time there. How pessimistic are you about the direction, or, or perhaps not, perhaps you are still optimistic about Hong Kong's future, but I guess how, how loud an alarm would you want to sound about what is now happening in Hong Kong? I'd want to sound quite a loud alarm. I'm a great admirer of a journalist called Steve Vines, who wrote a book called Defying the Dragon. He was, he was driven out of, of Hong Kong by what he calls the white terror. And he says, in effect, he doesn't see much prospect of things getting much better in the short term. But I'm aware of, I'm aware of a real problem I have. People are endlessly asking with young Hong Kong Chinese students whether they should go back, whether they should return to live in Hong Kong. And I just never know what to say. I, if I say, of course, that there's no problem, I'm requiring them to be braver than I've had to be. I was governor. I wasn't going back and, and risking having to sacrifice my values and the things I believe in, in order to stay and in order to raise a family. So I find it the most difficult question of all. I hope that we see in my lifetime, Nelson Mandela's prescription that you couldn't lock up an idea and that some ideas stay longer than others. And I hope that happens in Hong Kong with Hong Kong's notion of citizenship 
outlasting the nasty things that the Chinese Communist Party does and believes in. I hope that, but I, you know, I couldn't ask somebody else to bet their future on it at the moment. Yeah, I remember that seeing Joshua Wong and Nathan Law with the t-shirts quoting Mandela, it always seems impossible until it's done. Yeah. Extraordinary bravery. I would be remiss not to ask you one last question about British politics. There is a footnote in the book, and I would not ordinarily read out a footnote, but I suspect it was there to be noticed, about the Prime Minister. You describe Boris Johnson as a successful journalist who blagged his way into politics the mayoralty of London, the leadership of the Brexit campaign, and then of the Conservative Party. You say he's correctly described by a former Conservative Attorney General as a moral vacuum. But how do you view the current situation? What would be your message to the Prime Minister and also to the Tory rebels? What, what should they do next? And how much damage is this doing to the, the party that you have, you have served so long? Well, we can't blame other countries for not trusting our Prime Ministers, because we don't trust him, do we? And at the moment, the determinant of, of government policy seems to be to please the right wing of the Conservative Party or the DUP in Northern Ireland in order to try to keep, to, to save the Prime Minister's skin. I think that the Conservative Party is in danger of turning into an English nationalist party. I think there are real threats to the union, to England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, real, real threats across the board. And I hope that doesn't turn out to be, to be true. I think we have a government which is pretty incompetent, which is a cause for shame because of the seedy way it behaves. Doesn't mean that everybody in it is like that, but certainly people take their, take their lesson from the top. And I've just been listening to the person who's allegedly our attorney general, head of our legal advice, answering questions about the Northern Ireland protocol, which are, well, were absurd. So I think there's a lot of reason for hoping for changes in the Conservative Party, but just as I think the Labour Party at the moment is blighted by its past relationship with, with uh, Labour, with the trade unions, so the Conservative Party is blighted by the way it was Brexitized, even by people who are now saying, well, we didn't want it to go like this, um, if only it had been done differently, you know, it would all been much better. I think we've got real problems in both our major parties, and I'm not sure that the way we govern ourselves will be greatly improved until both those parties have the sort of final nervous breakdown that they're going to have sooner or later. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice you would give to the rebels about what they should do next or anybody that you would like to see as the next leader? Well, I don't want to blight anybody's chances by advocating it, but there are, there are several people who would have done the job much better, including the candidate that Boris defeated, uh, Jeremy Hunt, but there are, I'm sure, others as well. What I would just say is don't give up hope. The book that's probably made the most difference in my life, really, when the way I look at the world, is one by, not as widely read as it should be in this country, I don't think, by the great Austrian Jewish intellectual Stefan Zweig, called The World of Yesterday, in which he describes European civilization at the beginning of the 20th century, and the way it was shredded and destroyed by fascism and by class warfare um, after the First World War and before the Second. And terrified about what was happening and nervous about his own position, he and his wife went into exile from Austria as Jews. They went to Britain, to America, and eventually in Brazil. And he wrote this book, The World of Yesterday, describing the threats to European civilization, the way that night was coming down. 
And the day after he'd sent the book to the publishers, he and his wife committed suicide. That was before the 1C conference had, had plotted the industrialized murder of six million Jews. And I just think if he'd, if he hadn't done that, if he'd lived to 1946, 47, 48, in the 50s, he would have been amazed at how, with actually at the time American leadership, we saved Europe and Europe turned itself around. And so did the world after what some historians talk about now as the second 30 years war, two wars, which resulted in what's 120 million people dying. Um, and the destruction of one country after another, but we actually turned it round. So I don't think one should necessarily be too gloomy about the future, but it does depend on people standing up for what they believe in, saying what they believe in and not taking any, um, any self-serving rubbish, dangerous rubbish from political leaders. Well, I think that's a great place to, to wrap this up. And you've somehow managed to bring us back to a note of hope and optimism. Just about. <laughs> Lord Patton, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and please rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Mae Robson. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.